Hello, I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America, which is the founder and owner of the open access journal Lupus Science and Medicine that is published by BMJ. In this podcast, we will be discussing the article, Delivering Clinical Trials at Home, Protocol, Design, and Implementation of a Direct-to-Family Pediatric Lupus Trial. The article is available for free online at lupus.bmj.com. Our guests include Dr. Stephen Balovic, Assistant Professor of Adult and Pediatric Rheumatology at Duke University School of Medicine, CARA Registry Associate, and Principal Investigator of the iPersonal Trial. Dr. Rachel Randell, Fellow of Pediatric Rheumatology at Duke University School of Medicine and Fellow at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. And Dr. Laura Shanberg, Professor of Pediatrics at Duke University School of Medicine and member at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Let's begin, Dr. Balovic, by describing some of the challenges of conducting clinical trials, and especially trials that involve pediatric lupus patients. Conducting clinical research in children is especially challenging, and this is especially true for rare pediatric diseases like lupus, for example. So there's a number of challenges that we encounter when just conducting routine clinical trials. So this is a very rare disease. Pediatric subspecialists are also rare. There's many states that don't have any pediatric rheumatologists, and so it can be very, very difficult then to enroll enough patients to be able to conduct a clinical trial. Now, collaborators at CARE and, and elsewhere have really changed the paradigm so that we can connect with many, many different sites across the country to be able to enroll children in, in clinical research studies. One of the main challenges, though, we have in this traditional clinical trial model, though, is that it places a big burden on our patients and their families. So because pediatric subspecialists and academic medical centers are far and few between, many of our patients travel several hours just for routine clinical care. And so you can imagine then that the time away from school, the time away from work, and just the actual transportation. And to be able to participate in research then for a number of our patients, it's a huge, huge burden. Describe the concept of direct-to-family or in-home clinical trials and provide our listeners with a brief overview of the possible challenges for using this concept. The traditional clinical trial model, you know, we're really engaging patients and their families through a site. So this would be something like a clinic or a hospital. And one of the challenges, as we mentioned earlier, with this traditional site-based model is that we really can't enroll all the patients who we know are out there. So a lot of the times, the traditional clinical trials, we're starting to wonder if these results are really generalized because there's a number of patients who don't have access to research studies. So in the uh, virtual trial model, we sort of turn that paradigm on its head. So instead of patients and families having to come to us to participate in research, now we're going to them. So these uh, direct-to-family or at-home or, or what some people call virtual or decentralized trials, they really all get the same theme of conducting research outside of a brick-and-mortar facility. So in the case of our personal, this was actually engaging patients and conducting all of our visits in the comfort of a patient's home. And this does have a number of advantages with it, right? So it's inherently a, a much more family centered design. So it reduces a lot of the burden on patients and their families. And we can reach patients who can otherwise have been unrepresented in clinical research. So whether that's transportation difficulties or financial barriers, or again, just difficulty taking time away from school and time away from work. You know, now when we enter the home, we can do this around the patient and their family's uh, convenience around their schedule. So the concept here is that it's much more family centered. So it can really optimize enrollment. Not the same 
same time, because we don't have to go through a clinical sites and worry about all the additional contracting, we can uh, activate a clinical trial much, much quicker uh, and potentially with reduced uh, costs. But uh, also, as you alluded to, there's a number of challenges in doing a direct-to-family trial. So the first is, how do we actually identify which patients are even eligible to enroll in the trial? Right In our traditional model, we have the benefit of working with individual physicians and their clinical sites. And so we can you know, see who arrives at a clinic that day or who's eligible based on the medical record. But when we take sites out of the equation, the question is, well, how do we know who is lupus and who doesn't have lupus? So one of the uh, great advantages of the our personal study is that we were able to partner with the care registry. So through the care registry, there's very robust data collection on over 10,000 children with various rheumatic diseases. And so we were able to partner with them to identify who was eligible. Uh, so that was one way we overcame one of those challenges. But on top of that, there's just uh, other logistical barriers with actually going into patients' homes. And so there's various telemedicine legal requirements requirements that you may have to meet, depending on whether your study is considered one-way research or two-way research. And then all of these sort of decentralized direct-to-family trials rely inherently on technology. So to be able to collect things like patient-reported outcomes, uh, collect other data, or even home phlebotomy to collect blood samples. And so there's a number of different logistical barriers in these trials compared to what we're used to in a more traditional clinical trial. Dr. Rachel Brandell. What are the potential benefits you had hoped to identify through this direct-to-family clinical trial? Although there have been these virtual or decentralized trials reported for at least 10 years, basically everything that I could find in the literature came from adults. So I think something that is a definite gap that affects our pediatric patients, pediatric patients with rare diseases, and pediatric patients with rheumatic diseases is that no one really knows, is it feasible? Is it possible to even do this type of study design in this group of patients? And so the benefits that have been seen with doing this type of trial design in terms of of improved enrollment, reduced costs, increased efficiency, that sort of thing have been shown basically with adults. So that's something that we're really excited to share what we've learned about from this trial with the community. For the iPersonal trial, you monitored the compliance and the response among these pediatric lupus patients to hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. Why did you want to study that therapy with this group? It's well known that I love hydroxychloroquine. But in addition to that, there's two other reasons why we wanted to study hydroxychloroquine. So the first is related to the fact that, uh, you know, this drug has been around so long that in the pediatric community, we've largely used it based on what we have observed from adults. So we don't have any dedicated uh, PK trials for hydroxychloroquine in children, for example. So we give the same weight-based dose in children that we give to adults. And what we've learned from other studies, the infliximab trial in juvenile arthritis, for example, is that when we give the same weight-based dose to adults and kids, it actually produces different drug levels, different amounts of the drug in the system. And so I'm not at all convinced that we actually uh, know how to dose hydroxychloroquine correctly. And so uh, part of the study was a PK study where we were collecting blood samples to be able to determine the optimal dose. Uh, but then second, you know, our primary outcome is medication adherence. And that's really, really important, I think, for a number of reasons, right? Pediatric lupus affects our patients when they're most vulnerable. These are school-aged children who already have enough on their plate. And then on top of that, we now add a chronic illness like lupus and multiple medications that usually have to be taken to help control lupus. 
And so we know that just the adjustment of a chronic illness, the adjustment of, of a very complex medication regimen can make it very difficult to just remember to take medications and just adhere to that treatment schedule. And so our intervention is actually trying to improve medication adherence. And so we wanted to choose a drug that was really the a cornerstone of therapy in lupus. And virtually all children are treated with hydroxychloroquine. And so it, it seemed like a natural candidate then to help us uh, study a drug and, and try to improve medication adherence. And there's some evolving literature, particularly in adults, that have started to look at hydroxychloroquine blood levels and medication adherence. And so we thought that that also would lend itself well to this particular study. Okay, so now let's move on to learn how you went about developing this trial. Describe the process for our listeners. A very large component of putting this trial together was really partnering with parents, patients, and various stakeholders to try to really optimize the design of the study. So when we first were putting the concept together, we had a lot of unanswered questions, right? So how do patients and their families actually feel about investigators going into the home of patients, especially in light of COVID-19 and everything else that was going on during the time of the pandemic? And again, how do we really engage the patient community? Here, we were really fortunate, again, to partner with CARA. And so, so Kara was able to connect us with one of our colleagues, Vincent Del Gaizo, who through Kara and through the Partners Network helped us actually connect with several uh, lupus patients uh, as well as their families and other stakeholders from Kara and the Lupus Foundation of America. Then we were able to put together a patient and parent stakeholder advisory group to really help answer some of these questions and just make sure we were really developing a very family-centered design. And that was incredibly helpful, I think, for a number of different reasons. So first, we were able to change some of our study protocol to align with what was important to patients and their families. So just to give you an example, even though we weren't directly working with clinical sites, we heard from our stakeholders that engaging the patient's primary rheumatologist was really, really important. And so when all of our patients were enrolled in the study, we reached out to the rheumatologist to inform them about the study and also return results to them. As part of the uh, personal trial, we're going into the home and collecting uh, blood at, at four different times points, and we're measuring lupus disease activity. And so being able to return those results to clinicians, you know, not only is a way that we can engage the community at a broader level, but it may actually help these patients get better clinical care. I said, especially because we were doing these procedures in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic when access to clinical sites was even more restricted. So I think really engaging patients and their families was really a key way of just optimizing enrollment. I think the uh, second important thing I wanted to mention was the fact that we felt it was very important for patients to actually have heard about the trial prior to us contacting them. And because we were leveraging the CARA registry, one thing we don't want to do is just cold call a bunch of families with, uh, with new research opportunities. So we wanted families to know that this was a trial that was being conducted, you know, in conjunction with the CARA registry, in conjunction with the Lupus Foundation of America, and, and with patients and parent stakeholders. And so we were able to work with both CARA and the LFA to help spread awareness about the trial through websites and social media so that when we reached out to patients, they had already heard about the study and even had the opportunity to opt out of being contacted if they weren't interested in the study. Dr. Shanberg, from your experience having been involved with many other clinical studies in the field of pediatric rheumatology, what do you believe is the most important consideration in studying this population? Doing 
pediatric rheumatology research and pediatrics of specialty research at all successfully is really dependent on both putting together a team that both works with families and works with the providers and investigators. And I think Stephen nicely gave specific examples about how for this trial, we were able to do that. But I just wanted to add that it's not just a home-based trial that needs that, right? Every single trial that we do that we generate through CARA at this point involves patients who are not just enrolled in the study, but are engaged as part of the study team. And that is even before the grants go in. And so I think really the future of doing clinical research involves a much larger emphasis on the diversity of the team so that it includes not just the investigators who are designing the studies and running the studies, but also investigators who are likely to participate. So people from the community as well as families. That is a very important consideration. Dr. Rendell. Describe for our listeners some of the steps you had to complete in order to get the iPersonal study up and running. To get into a little bit more of the technical details of the study, in order to bring a clinical trial into a family's home, you need a lot. It's pretty complex. So first you need a study site for your clinical research organization to sort of organize all of the activities that are going on. You also need the team that's going to be doing the enrollment. In our case, this was a call center that called patients and their families from the CARA registry. And then you need your in-home study team. For this study, we needed home health nurses who could go out into the families' homes in order to do certain assessments, check things like their active joint counts, listen to their heart and lungs. We also needed physicians who could stream in over video to take part in some of our assessments. And then we also needed someone to collect the blood and urine samples. In our study, we used the same home health nurses who were doing the hands-on assessments to do the blood samples as well. We also needed a research coordinator who could help the nurses and the study participants set up all of their research devices and other technologies, which are a separate thing that Stephen alluded to is critical to this in-home research is actually getting that information from patients directly from their homes to our study team. In this study, we had a couple of different devices. One was our medication adherence device, which was a bottle with a sensor in the cap that marked the date and time that you opened the pill bottle to presumably take your medication. And so that was one type of technology that we relied on for the study. We also used patient surveys, which the study participants actually did on a study iPhone, and that went directly to the study team as well. So in order to oversee both the physicians, the nurses, the blood draws, and all of this technology, we had to partner with someone. It wasn't something that we could do all on our own. We interviewed tons of different vendors and ultimately decided to work with Science 37, which is sort of a niche virtual trial company. They were able to oversee all of the care providers, like the physicians and the nurses, as well as provide a technology platform that could integrate data from all of these different devices. We also needed a lab to run our studies, who actually runs the blood and urine tests. And we did have some specialized labs as well. So we ended up partnering with a lab that could cover as many of our specialized tests as possible. And then finally, because all of these different bits of data were coming from different streams, we needed some way to integrate it all. And so for that, we ended up using an 
in-house data integration team through the Duke Clinical Research Institute, which was also our clinical research organization for the study. And then, of course, we have our study team and our statisticians. So it ends up getting pretty complicated, but we hope that on the patient end, it felt very streamlined. Dr. Balovic, this study seems to have had a lot of components spread out over a very large geographic area. Were there any unique challenges that you identified? Yeah, we talk about it like it's one type of design, but in reality, it's, it's very heterogeneous, right? Uh, so it can be a completely virtual, like what we conducted by personal. It can be a hybrid where, you know, maybe patients are enrolled at a site, all their follow-up visits happen uh, remotely. Well, something unique to our personal is since we were conducting physical exams, we were conducting virtual sled eye exams, uh, and we were going into the homes with home health personnel, is that we did have to partner with somebody who had medical licenses in those states who could oversee the home health personnel and the physical exam. Uh, now, again, that's not uniform for every virtual trial. So there may be some clinical trials where you don't need to have physicians in other states who are licensed to be able to supervise. So it really just depends. And part of what we tried to do with this manuscript was to put in some of these lessons learned so that if other researchers are interested in leveraging this design, they at least know where to start. Dr. Randell, describe some of the technical features of this trial that enabled you to collect data and ensure that it was reliable. So in terms of the operations of the trial, like if you were a participant in this trial, what it would feel like would be that you would get a call from the Duke Clinical Research Institute asking if you were interested in participating in this trial. Now, you would have already have had to be connected to the CARA registry, as we mentioned, because that was the pool of potential participants that we used for this study. And then after enrolling and undergoing the informed consent and ASENT process for pediatric patients, you would schedule an in-home visit. And for For this study, we did four in-home visits over a six-month period. At each of the home visits, you would have a home health nurse come out to your house to do some of those assessments that we talked about. And the clinical research coordinator would also help collect the other assessments, such as your surveys and some other information using like the study iPhone and some other technologies. The first visit was a very long visit because that's when we had the remote physician also video in and do the full physical exam. And then you have a blood test done and a urine sample collected at each visit. The subsequent three visits are a little shorter, but are basically the same structure there. Dr. Schamberg, are there other benefits for using this approach to conducting clinical trials? I've done a study in the past where I actually went to the patient's homes, and you learn really fascinating information from actually being in a family's home. And there is an opportunity with doing those kinds of studies where you have somebody going into the home to pick up additional types of data that we really were not into with this study wasn't part of that question, but especially with growing interest in different types of predictors of health and health risks, social determinants of health by going to a patient home, you do open up potential opportunities to do some different types of data collection that could potentially be very enlightening. Dr. Balovic, were there other important lessons that you learned about conducting direct-to-family trials? You know, I think other lessons we really uh, touched on earlier. So one is really the importance of engaging patients and stakeholders. Uh, Laura made some fantastic points about, you know, how care has been leading in the space, not just for virtual trials, but for traditional trials as well. Uh, and that was uh, particularly important because by you know, leveraging the care registry to identify eligible patients by having a very family-centered design, you know, we were able to enroll uh, all of our patients within 10 days. So it was the quickest we had ever enrolled in a 
pediatric trial. I think largely that success reflects, uh, again, some of the partnerships to, that we had in place at the time. So I think that was a really key lesson learned. And I think a second really important lesson, which we uh, talked about a little bit earlier, is just understanding some of the legal and regulatory requirements surrounding direct-to-family trials. Of course, telemedicine laws are, are always updating, always changing, but there's a really fine line between what's considered tele-research and what's considered telemedicine. And so being cognizant of where that line is drawn, I think is, is really, really important. When we were putting this trial together, we actually conducted a 20-state survey of what the various telemedicine laws were, just to make sure we weren't encroaching upon some of those. And I'll point out that, you know, based on our preliminary data, it does look like our trial was successful in rolling a pretty diverse population, both geographically and, and also uh, from a racial and ethnic perspective as well. And so we are hoping that by easing the burden to participate in research, that we will be able to reach patients who otherwise, uh, again, have been underrepresented in clinical research. So I think that's a really important aspect of this model. Now, there are a couple other things that we tried to do as part of the personal study to just increase that diversity, right? So one thing we wanted to make sure of, although these direct-to-family trials rely inherently on technology, we didn't want technology to be a requirement to get into the study. So even though we were collecting information on phones, for example, we provisioned a, a smartphone for all participants in the study. And that way, uh, having a smartphone was not a requirement. So we made sure that regardless of what our different patients' access to technology was, that we could overcome that. So what do you see as the next steps in this area of study? Do you see a future for direct-to-family clinical studies? These direct-to-family trials, I think, are a very innovative way to really connect with patients and their families. But it's not the only sort of tool in our, our toolbox, so to speak, in that there are still certain types of research questions that we're going to need to answer. For example, you know, first in human drugs, you know, uh, infusion drugs, drugs that are higher risk, where we're still going to need more of a traditional site-based model. Now, whether there could be some direct-to-family component to that is very, very possible. So I sort of see these direct family trials is, again, being another tool in our toolkit, so to speak. And so, again, happy if there's any investigators out there that are interested in putting together these designs. Welcome to collaborate with uh, anybody on this call, this uh, study team, and we'll be happy to help provide some information maybe beyond that what's in our manuscript. Dr. Randell, your thoughts? Of course, we're very interested to see how the direct-to-family trial design works for our pediatric lupus patients and their families, but we're also getting some really critically important information about hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil dosing and levels in our pediatric patients. And then I also wanted to mention that we're testing this medication adherence device that, if it's found to be useful, could potentially be very helpful for our patients to remember to take their medications, and maybe not just Plaquenil, but maybe other medications as well. Now, this was a small study. There were only 26 patients, so we may not have enough patients to definitively say if that works or not based on the results of this study, but it should give us a good sense of if that's a, a future direction to move forward to, too. All that goes to say is this trial is capturing a ton of information across a bunch of different aspects of care for pediatric lupus, and so I think we're going to get a lot more interesting information about the direct-to-family design and others. Well, I want to congratulate you and your team at Duke University for tackling this important study to evaluate direct-to-family trials among pediatric lupus patients. We'd love to hear more about the data from your study of hydroxychloroquine among these pediatric lupus patients when it becomes available. 
I want to thank our guests for sharing their insights with us during this podcast. We have been speaking with Dr. Stephen Balavec, Assistant Professor of Adult and Pediatric Rheumatology at Duke University School of Medicine, CARA Registry Associate, and Principal Investigator of the iPersonal Trial, and Dr. Rachel Randell, Fellow of Pediatric Rheumatology at Duke University School of Medicine and Fellow at the Duke Clinical Research Institute, and Dr. Laura Shanberg, Professor of Pediatrics at Duke University School of Medicine and a member at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. They were discussing their article, Delivering Clinical Trials at Home, Protocol, Design, and Implementation of a Direct-to-Family Pediatric Lupus Trial, which is available for free online at lupus.bmj.com. For the Open Access Journal, Lupus Science and Medicine, and for BMJ, I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America. Thank you for listening.